Help us to hear you. Speak to us, Lord. Teach us. Reveal your will to us, Lord, this morning. We ask this for your sake and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, a thing slightly different this morning. And one of the reasons for that is the passage we're looking at today, Romans 9. I kind of defy you to come away from this passage without a sense of the immensity of God. And so if it feels to you like we've broken up the worship, not at all. This is part of the worship this morning. So I'm preaching today on Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 29. And in this sermon rota, Keith gave this sermon the title, Is It Unfair? And uh, when I looked at the passage and the controversial area I'm needing to cover today, I thought to myself, no, it's not fair. How mean to ask me to speak on this passage. (laughs) And then I remembered it was actually me who asked if I could preach on this passage. So my question changed from, is it unfair, to... Rob, are you crazy? (laughs) And I think you'll see why as we go through this passage. So there are are some parts of Scripture that are perhaps easy to skirt around. There's Paul with his various observations about women and authority. There's the passage in Genesis about Noah's drunk and disorderly conduct. Don't go there. There's the entire book of Song of Songs. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that are difficult to deal with. And this is one of the great and challenging things about the discipline of expository preaching, which is going from passage to passage. We're not picking and choosing favourite bits. We're not sticking to safe passages. We take scripture as it comes and let it speak for itself. So, fairness. Fairness is a universally understood concept, isn't it? Pretty much the second phrase I learned as a child was that's not fair, right after you're wrong, Dad, and here are five reasons why. (laughs) They always said I was a precocious boy and argumentative too, you'll be surprised to hear. Um, So we have a strong view on fairness. Everyone does, especially those born and raised in Britain. So here's an example. At the post office in Chester Town Centre on St. John Street, they have a ticket system. You press a button on the machine, you get a ticket with a number on it, and then you stand around looking slightly lost until your number's called. And while you're waiting, you're anxiously wondering why the display is showing ten tickets in front of you, even though there are only three other people in the shop. And if, if someone comes into the post office and goes straight up to the counter and tries to engage with a member of staff, well, that's just wrong, isn't it? And all the other customers who have done the right thing and who are waiting patiently, will start indicating their disapproval if they're British in various very British ways. (laughs) So, firstly, as long as the queue jumper is facing the other way, they will stare at the person who's jumped the queue. Stare with the force of a thousand angry tigers, (laughs) boring into the back of that outrageous person who's dared to circumvent the system. And next, maybe they'll look at each other and roll their eyes. And maybe even, and this is when you know they're really put out, with pursed lips, they'll shake their heads ever so slightly. (laughs) If you're not British and you ever notice one of us 
shaking his head very slightly and looking a little up and to the right of you. Be warned, you've offended us as badly as if you put mayonnaise on your chips. <laughs> I mean, come on. What right-thinking person does that? Everyone knows it's salt and vinegar or gravy. Anything else is the height of sacrilege. Get out! Now, if the waiting customers are really angry, I mean, we're beyond the staring and head-shaking stage. They're thinking this Q-jumper is just one step removed from Hitler. That's when the angry British customer starts apologising. Oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm ever so sorry, but I think you might need to take a ticket from the machine. Sorry. <laughs> we apologise a lot, don't we? So, we understand fairness. The Q-jumper represents all that we believe is wrong with the world. A person whose actions threaten the very fabric of our society. They're as bad as the people who suggest that burnt toast isn't a real breakfast. Anarchists! <laughs> it's ingrained in us, the concept of fairness. And so, as we turn to this passage, we're likely to find ourselves like the Q-jumped customers or the sibling with the ever-so-slightly-smaller slice of cake, asking, is this unfair? So, Romans 9. And we're reading verses 1 to 29. Romans 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are of his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise accounted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, by our Forefather, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done neither, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, that's a very long bit in brackets, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? 
For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not let us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So, in chapter 8, we've... Uh, Paul's been speaking about the amazing consequences of life with Christ. We've had Romans 8.28, all things working together for our good. Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors. 38-39, nothing can separate us from God's love. And then straight afterwards, despite all these incredible truths, Paul is saying he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Why is that? What's upsetting Paul so much? So in chapter 9, verse 4, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. What promises? Towards the tail end of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible, we see the Israelites standing before Moses. They're standing before God. And they've been saved from slavery in Egypt, And then, because of their fear and lack of faith, they spent the next 40 years wandering around the desert rather than going straight into the lush and bountiful land God's given them. So, we see them here. They've done their wandering in the desert. They've served their punishment for disbelief, and they're about to enter the promised land at last. And now God's renewing his covenant, his promises with them. He's told them previously that they will be his people, and he will be their God and protect them. And now he's repeating himself, reassuring them that despite their unbelief, he still loves them, and he wants to have a relationship with them. So in Deuteronomy 29, God reminds them of how bad things were in Egypt and how he saved them. And he warns them against pursuing other so-called gods, idols, and the detestable practices from evil religions. And he makes it clear that for those who refuse to believe God, there will be consequences. How the land would end up cursed because of their wrongdoing. How all their neighbours would know that these calamities were because of their lack of faith. And we might, with our modern minds, say, this just seems like a threat. This is coercion. Believe in me or you'll be punished. This is God forcing people to believe in him. But no, that's a misunderstanding. So look at the alternative to believing in God. 
these surrounding nations with their idolatry and their evil practices, they chose not to believe in God. And they built idols for themselves, pretend gods, and they barbarically sacrificed their children to these dead gods made of wood and stone. And these nations, they are descended from the same God-fearing parents as the Israelites. They're all children, ancestors, descendants of Noah. They've all had the same chance, the same opportunities, as it were. So the consequence of failure to trust God is that you inevitably end up trusting something else. Something that isn't 100% good, 100% loving, 100% pure, 100% just. People who are left to their own devices in this way tend towards greater and greater evil. And if you don't believe me, read any history book. Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Genghis Khan, they're all deniers of God and all guilty of some of the worst atrocities seen in human history, which were a natural consequence of their anti-God worldviews. Now, obviously, that's not to say that people who claim to follow Jesus are all great and well-behaved. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, they're pretty dark times in the history of our faith. But the actions of those people who claimed to fear God aren't the natural consequences of belief in Christ. Jesus, of course, said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So step away from God, step away from Jesus, and you walk away from the only absolute, reliable, sane morality. Now, God isn't asking the people, the Israelites, to believe something that's untrue. He's, he's not asking them to believe that the grass is blue, that the moon is made of cheese, or that it's morally okay to sacrifice your children. What he's saying, what he's asking is not unreasonable. Believe in me, he says. Believe in truth. Believe in goodness. Believe in justice, in love, in righteousness. If you don't believe in those things, if you prefer lies to truth, evil to goodness, anarchy to justice. You can see how things will go badly, can't you? It's a law of the universe that evil will not ultimately succeed, that the unrighteous will have their comeuppance. It's a law of the universe because God is good and he made it so. So we have the curses on the one hand, the appalling consequences of failure to trust and follow God. And on the other hand, as we move into Deuteronomy 30, we see the blessings that follow for the Israelites if they do trust God. So 30 verse 3, Moses says that if they believe in God, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Verse 5, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Verse 9. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. And so on. He's promising blessing, prosperity, safety, Joy, hope. 
And then, in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 30, Moses presents the choice. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So why would you not choose life, choose blessing? Do you see how absurd it is, how ridiculous even, to choose death and curses? Now this is a reasonable decision God is asking his people to make. He's not saying, choose my way and be my slaves forever or I will smite you. He's saying, choose my way. Let me be your loving father. Let me bless you and show you that the way of purity is always the best way. This isn't coercion. This isn't an unreasonable request. This isn't God overriding people's will. This is God saying, if you put your hand in the fire, guess what? You're going to be burned. And so, going back to to today's passage, at the start of Romans 9, can you see why Paul is so troubled that the Jews are rejecting Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, who's been promised to them all along. They were looking forward to receiving him. And even though they've rejected God again and again, God has still made good on his promises, still forgiven them. And yet the Israelites are still saying, not interested, go away. And Paul's brokenhearted about this. He's got a fatherly, a pastoral care for them. Now, any parent who has a wayward child who has agonized and wept over their poor life choices feels the same thing. Let me die in their place, Paul's saying. So, okay, that's not too difficult to grasp. But verse 6, though, we've got a bit of work to do to understand and apply this. We, We have a real challenge with the whole concept of Israel as a special people chosen by God. And to this day, those who follow Judaism, who believe they're descended from Abraham, they believe that they are in favor with God. And they also tend to believe that the way to salvation is through good deeds and through following the law. Yet now we have Paul weeping because some Jews aren't accepting Jesus and aren't saved. Does this mean that God's promise has failed? Well, no, because firstly, there's a mistake made, a serious mistake, forgetting forgetting what we've just seen in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. God gave them a choice, blessings and life or curses and death. And these Jews over whom Paul is weeping have chosen curses and death. And Paul here from verse 6 onwards, he's correcting some misconceptions. So he's got Jews saying to him, we have Abraham. We're his children. We're safe. And Paul, knowing his Bible excellently, is saying, look, folks, what you're conveniently overlooking is that being a child of Abraham doesn't automatically make you a child of the promise, a child of the covenant. So a bit more ancient Israelite history then. When in verse 7 he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he's quoting a very old passage from the first book of the Bible, Genesis 21, 12. And the history here is that God has promised to Abraham that he would become the father of many nations. And Abraham's married to Sarah, 
and Sarah's been unable to conceive. Sarah's well into her 70s, and ultimately she gives up on the idea of becoming a, a mother. So instead, she suggests that they see if her maid will bear a child on her behalf. And this probably seems like an astonishing suggestion. But we've got some evidence that in ancient Hebrew times, the marriage contract included an obligation on the wife's part to produce an heir for her husband. And if she failed to conceive, these contracts would allow a wife to offer to her husband a servant to stand in her place. So if the servant conceived, then the child would be given full legal status as an heir. So Sarah isn't conceiving and she suggests her maid Hagar instead. Even though the customs of that time provided a solution to childlessness, a bizarre solution, admittedly, but a solution nonetheless, even though there's a way out, Sarah is brokenhearted that she has not been able to fall pregnant. And that's a subject of heartbreak for many couples, I know. The desire for children of their own, and Sarah's really struggling with it. So Hagar the maid becomes pregnant and she bears Abraham's firstborn, a son called Ishmael. And Ishmael goes on to become the father of the Arab nations, which are, of course, constantly at loggerheads with Israel for the rest of history to the present day. Now, later in the story, as Sarah's approaching 90, God again repeats that she will become a mother. Did you hear that? 90. At this point, she finds this suggestion a bit hysterical and maybe she was bitter too i mean we can understand that can't we she thinks god is joking when he says she will have a child at 90 and maybe she feels it's cruel to joke about such things but then the miracle happens it's not a joke sarah conceives and bears isaac and god says isaac's the one not ishmael Not the child born out of your lack of faith, trying to force it, trying to make the promise happen. It's the child of the miracle. He will be the one through whom this promise will be fulfilled. And in this run-up to Christmas, we might think of another miraculously conceived child through whom God's promises were to be fulfilled. It wasn't humanly possible for Sarah to conceive. It wasn't humanly possible for Jesus' mother Mary to conceive him the way she did. The child born to Sarah, Isaac, eventually stands as the head of a massive race of people who God loves and saves. The child born to Mary, Jesus, he stands as the head of a new race of people, those who accept him who are members of the church, Jesus' body, people who God loves and saves. And Jesus has come, and he's reiterated God's promise of salvation, and to anyone who's able to listen, he's made God's intentions clear. And so back to Romans, right? We see the Jews have been insisting that being Abraham's descendants qualifies them for the promised inheritance. And Paul is saying, no. No. You're missing the point. It's not the lineage. It's not the ancestry that's important here. It's the faith. 
that trust in God. God isn't bound by our traditions or the way we think things ought to play out. In Abraham's day, it was always the firstborn son who inherited most of the land, most of the wealth, most of the entitlement. God is not bound by that. And Paul goes on to say, different story, slightly later chapter of history, how in the case of Jacob and Esau, again, God does things his way, not the way the Israelites assumed things ought to be done, not the way their traditions dictated. Jacob, the younger of the twins, though he's not the firstborn, he's the one God chooses for the greater blessing. He's the one who becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. The usual order of things is reversed. And Jacob goes on to trust God, to please him, and God, faithful to his own word, blesses Jacob. And so Paul is saying God's promises don't fail. But, he says, don't get it into your heads that God pays the slightest bit of attention to who your daddy is, what connections you have, what powerful friends, how much money, what supposed claims to greatness. Those things don't impress him. So, okay, this this passage gets even more challenging at verse 14. Verse 14 and 15. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Leap to verse 18. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We don't like this, do we? We ask ourselves, is this unfair? And he mentions here Pharaoh, and of course he means Pharaoh, who kept stopping Moses from taking the Israelites out of Egypt. And you can read the whole story, not right now obviously, but you can read the whole story starting at Exodus chapter 7, Exodus being the second book of the Bible. And over and again, over and over again, Moses and his brother Aaron, they ask Pharaoh if, they can, if he'll release the Israelites. And Pharaoh says no. And then there's a plague. And Pharaoh says, stop the plague and I'll let them go. And so the plague stops and Pharaoh changes his mind. Rinse and repeat. And again and again in that story, we read that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That God hardened his heart. And so the temptation must be to say, if God was hardening Pharaoh's heart, then is it Pharaoh's fault that he resisted God? And you might be tempted to say, is it fair of God to keep sending plagues on the Egyptians when it's God himself who's influencing Pharaoh to extend the Israelites' slavery? Do you follow that? I mean, this is probably one of the hardest things for a 21st century Westerner to understand. We believe in free will. We believe in making our own choices, in hauling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We believe in the empowered individual. We don't like the idea that God might make us do something or that we're in any way dependent on him. Now, I think there's a satisfactory, more than satisfactory explanation for this. But before I get to the explanation, there's something we need to get really clear in our minds. Paul more or less says it in verse 20. Who are you, O man, 
to answer back to God. Will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? He's talking about pottery. God is the potter, we are the clay. God chooses what to make us into. Now, when I was preparing this study, and more importantly, when I was preparing my heart before God, there was one phrase that kept popping into my head, particularly as I read the second half of this passage. Know your place. Oh, we don't like that, do we? Know your place. Now, if we, if we humans decide to build a house or a new road, do we consult with the ants and the worms that are living there before we start, before we put a spade in the ground? No. They have to make way. Sorry, ants. Sorry, worms. Humans coming through. Let's get a sense of perspective here. As an entity, as a person, God is vastly removed from us in whose superiority, in his greatness, further removed from us than we are from ants. Yes, we're made in his image with the ability to think, to make choices, to understand good and evil, to love. But we really are a very, very long way from his knowledge, his ability, his understanding, his insight. God made this entire universe. At any given time, he knows exactly where every atom in the universe is, what it's part of, and where it's going next. He knows every event that has happened, is happening, and will ever happen. Do you? I don't. And so here at least is a partial explanation of why God might have hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what do we know about God? From the universe and from the Bible, his personal revelation of himself, we know that he's good and just and kind. And we know that his ultimate purpose is for our good and for his glory. And so, he will always do whatever achieves our good and his glory. <coughs> and so, when he hardens Pharaoh's heart, what is his purpose? Our good and his glory. When he sends the ten plagues on the Egyptians, what is his purpose? Our good and his glory. And God used those circumstances to bring about a radical change in the fortunes of the Israelites. They went from slavery to freedom. And at the same time, he used their deliverance, passing through the Red Sea, as a symbol to us of our narrow escape from evil through God's power and mercy. And in the Ten Plagues, we get at least an inkling of the vast power of God's the vast power that he has at his command, his total authority over all creation. And meanwhile, what do we know about Pharaoh? Well, we know from earlier in the story that he was cruel and unreasonable. The Israelites, one of their jobs as slaves was to make bricks. They had a quota that they had to fulfill every day. Bricks needed straw to make them strong. And at some point in their slavery, he tells them, 
He's not going to give them the straw anymore. But they've got to carry on making as many bricks as they did before, and they must be the same quality. So they then have to go and search for the straw, wherever they can find it, and still fulfill their daily quota of bricks, or else they would be beaten. Pharaoh is already not a nice man before God hardens his heart. And I believe that in God's treatment of Pharaoh, he's hastening Pharaoh's punishment for his cruelty, and he's hastening the salvation of the Israelites. And God is glorified in this. After all, today, many thousands of years later, we know this story. We know God's part in it, and we give God the glory for it, for the way he saved the Israelites, for the way he punished the cruelty and rebellion of the Egyptians. God's purpose is our good and his glory. And we as the clay, we need to know our place as we sit in the hands of Almighty God, the master potter. That's a terrifying place to be, but it's also the safest place we can possibly be. Know your place. So this isn't to make us feel bad about ourselves. It's to ensure that we're thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. Our friend Nathan Paler, some of you met him at the Hub on Thursday. Nathan has a favorite phrase. God is God and we are not. Who's the one who's all-knowing, righteous and good? Is it us? No. Is it God? Yes. Let's go back to the passage in the light of this and read it again. Verses 19 to 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God is God, and we are not. There's obviously much more we could say about this passage, but we'll stop there. We've seen here God's sovereignty, his supremacy over all things. We've seen that in his overwhelming greatness, he chooses us to be part of his plan of love and salvation. We've seen that we need to know our place But that's not simply about understanding our dependence on God and our need for submission. It's also about understanding that our place is within his plan. He's chosen us. He wants, in the end, for things to go well for us. It's probably right that we feel challenged by this. It's bruising to our egos, and that's probably no bad thing. But also for those of us who've seen our need of Jesus, our need of his power to make us clean, to make us right, for us, this is also a message of great hope.
hope. We know that God will work his plans through to completion and no one and nothing can thwart him. If you're not living in the certainty of that, if you've not accepted Jesus and want to, or if you have accepted him, but you're, not, you're still not sure that he loves you and is interested in your ultimate way, welfare, we, we'd love to pray with you afterwards. After we finish this morning, just grab my elbow or Keith's or a Christian you respect and let's talk and pray. And I'll pray over us all now. Lord God, we thank you that we can know our place. We can know our place within your purposes. We can know who we are and who you've made us to be because you tell us. We thank you, Lord, further that we know your goodness, that you care for us, that you are working all things together for our good. We praise you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. And we honor you this morning. I ask that you will seal in our hearts those words today which are yours. Thank you, Father. And may this be for your glory. Amen.